Hi, I'm Jackie, and we're in a series called Power, Vulnerability, and Leadership. Today, we're talking with Kat Armstrong about how many of us women are taught to hold back when, in fact, our Jesus is saying, bring it on. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. So today we're talking to my colleague Kat Armstrong via Skype because we're doing the social distancing thing. And Kat is an author of No More Holding Back and a new book that's coming out, which she'll tell us a little bit about at the end, which is called The In-Between Place. And I want you to know she's an excellent preacher, and I'm a good judge of female preachers, and she's an excellent preacher and leader. And she is the co-founder of The Polished Network and the host of The Polished Podcast. So I just want to welcome you, Kat. I appreciate you giving us your time. I know, like everybody else, you're very busy and... Um, grappling with your son being home and you working from home and all, and your probably your husband is working from home. Yeah. We are all here and my mom lives with us and she's working from home. So it is a, everyone's fighting over the bandwidth on the internet connection. Yep. I get it. I get it. So are we. Okay. So I want to talk about your book, uh, No More Holding Back. You open your story, this book with a story about a man in seminary you and I both went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and you tell you tell this story about he said, just stop. So can you share mm-hmm. a little bit about what happened and how that impacted you? Yes, this, this moment in my life has been so pivotal, uh, so transformative. And at the time, I felt so wounded. It was very traumatic. I know your listeners have gone through something similar, maybe not necessarily about gender or in a seminary class, but they have experienced when they've been singled out, excluded, and called to the carpet on something. And um, that's exactly what happened to me. I was in a seminary course with Dr. Allman, and he brought up the conversation about women learning about Jesus. Now, mind you, not leading, not teaching, not being elders of their church, not being the lead pastor not being called preach. No, no. The conversation was about women learning about Jesus. And, you know, Jackie, it was like the, my hand shot up and I wish I hadn't in some ways, but my hand went up and I said, I am afraid to learn too much about Jesus because I'm a woman. And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I wish I could take those words back and just put them back in my mouth because I want to process what on earth did I just say? And I, my subconscious was starting to reel and to think through, I can't believe I just said that. Why would I say that? Of course, women are supposed to learn about Jesus. I mean, God tells us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course I should, but I didn't have that time to process that in the class that day because one of my male colleagues, a gentleman to my right, 
turned to face me, pointed his whole arm out, pointed his finger directly at me, raised his voice and said, just stop, just stop. And he said, you can learn too much about Jesus. Wow. Because wow. you're a woman. And he said, and when you learn too much about Jesus, you become a threat to the local church and a threat to the institution of marriage. And thank God that Dr. Allman jumped in and rescued me from the nonsense coming out of this foolish man. It's the kindest way I can say it. And you and I know what foolish can mean in the scriptures in the original language, but that is the kindest way I can say. But you know, it's interesting, Jackie, what will come later in my story is that we may, you and I and your listeners may be tempted to go, oh, this guy. But you know what this story reveals is that he and I thought the exact same way. He just said it in a really off-putting way that brought it to my attention, that revealed the biases I had towards women, the misogyny that had shaped my understanding of the scriptures and my view of women. He and I felt the same way. He just had so much conviction to say it out loud and to yell at me, which is totally inappropriate in every setting, like unequivocally wrong. But Dr. Allman stepped in, he silenced that student, he called for a bathroom break because it was so tense in that moment. Um, I ran to the bathroom. Wait, Kat, let me ask you, well, let, me, let me interrupt just a yeah. second. How many other women were in the room, approximately? Just a few, and, maybe three or four. And then, like, how many men? Just to, just to get the feel of the intensity, right? Because it's probably not 50-50 in the room. No, oh no, no, no. I mean, gosh, it was so long ago, Jackie, but extremely disproportionate. We were, women in that classroom were extreme minority Um very outnumbered. Okay, so that that creates some of the atten- the tension right there, right? Because you're a minority and you're going, I don't really have a voice to say anything back. And I'm not sure what to say. Go ahead. So you run to the bathroom, bathroom break. Yeah, this particular building, you know, doesn't have a women's bathroom on the first floor. So I ran to a different building to go to the bathroom and to get myself a good, ugly cry. I mean, I was upset and shaken. And would you believe that student followed me to the women's bathroom and he got his foot in that door and pried open the door. So he he had one foot inside the women's bathroom and he said, I've got one question for you. Why are you even here? Mm. And, you know, he didn't say it with conviction this time. It was disgust. Right. I mean, he was disgusted that I was there. And in the moment, it was like a George Costanza moment. You're like, oh, I had no good words. And if I could go back in time, I would do it differently. But in the moment, I just said, I'm here. For the same reason you are. I need to study the Bible to learn. And he left and we never talked. And I don't know his name. Every every woman I talked to is like, what is his name? And I told him, I don't know. And he's really not the point of the story. No, he's not. It's really he, he and I agree. He's not the point of the story, right? I mean, because it's the it's the messages that come across. And he's not the only one that thinks this way. And even if someone never says it, it's the messages behind what's being said, right? So go ahead. Yeah, it's like invisible and insidious. It's invisible Mm -hmm. when it's serving you. It's insidious. It's like the system around us that we can't see that's influencing us. But you know what? He voiced that day. Why are you even here? Those are questions I was already asking myself. He and I believe the same thing. When he yelled at me and said, women can learn too much about Jesus. Moments earlier, I had said something very similar. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid because I'm a woman and I probably shouldn't be learning too much. And so... I opened the book sharing that my eyes were opened 
And now I had to do some digging in what I call theological weeds that had grown in my soul, um, wrong beliefs about women. And I had to go back in history and, and do some inventory of some of our faith fathers and see how this predominant view of women has been since the inception, of, since Eve was deceived in the garden. Um, and we haven't been able to shake it. Yeah. Great. So that leads me right into where we need to go next, messages we receive. And one of them that you share about in your book is that women can't be trusted to learn or to lean in, right? And so I want to move us to talk about Mary Magdalene, because you know we're in the middle of a, of a series called Power, Vulnerability, and Leadership. And we're actually diving into those concepts by looking at women's stories in the scriptures and seeing how Jesus engages women in these con- with these concepts of power, vulnerability, and leadership. And, and so we're going to move into Mary Magdalene. But before we do, let me just set up for the listeners a few things that they may not know. And that is that in Mary Magdalene's day, women were not allowed to learn underneath a rabbi, right? They couldn't be a student of a rabbi. They also weren't allowed to be witnesses to testify in, in a court of law because it was thought that their mind was too weak, too fickle, too unreliable. Again, these ideas that women can't be trusted. And so what's so amazing, like if you look at Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and when you get to Luke, uh, Luke 8, 4, we get the parable of the sower and the seed. And whenever we get to, we've ever heard Luke 8 preached, we only hear about the parable of the sower and the seed. And we miss the first three verses, which are really instrumental, especially when it comes to Jesus and women. But Mary Magdalene's in that story, verses 1 through 3. And what we learn just from those three verses is that Mary was with Jesus in the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. And then in Luke, we find she's there in the middle of his ministry. And then in John chapter 20, we find out she's there at the end of his ministry. And what's fascinating to me is what we learn is she's a disciple. She is learning Mm -hmm. at the feet of Jesus. And so what Mm -hmm. I have learned, as I know you have learned, is that as you dig back into the scriptures, and as you say, go through the weeds and actually get a new lens, you realize Jesus is really good news for women. He invites women into Mm -hmm. spaces and places where others say, she's not allowed. And so tell yeah. us a little bit, because I just love your story and how you tell about Mary Magdalene, particularly how she runs like a girl. But let's start with um, the redo in Eden and tell us a little bit about what you've discovered about Mary Magdalene. Yeah, Jackie, you are so, in- I mean, you, I think more than any other female preacher voice has influenced and shaped my ministry, who I am as a person. I mean, to be on here and have this conversation with you is such a privilege for me. And I remember you texting me um, right before we were getting on a plane to go to Israel together. It was my first and only time in Israel to study women of the Bible. And you asked me if I would preach a sermon about Mary Magdalene in Magdala, like ground zero for Jesus's feet. And that moment, Jackie, that shaped my book. And the next one, we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is just a really sacred moment for me mm. to have this conversation with you. Um, but yeah, I, I've been fascinated. And I want to make a whole life out of studying Genesis and John together. I feel like I could, I could spend the rest of my life just looking at these two beautiful books in parallel studies. And what I mean by that is we know that Genesis is about our first beginnings. That's why that book starts with in the beginning. 
But John starts the exact same way. He Mm -hmm. says, in the beginning as well. And we know that book is about our new beginnings in Christ. And so I started to see these two books as parallel works that when we read the book of John, we should really always be referencing back to Genesis and seeing how beautifully John just masterfully repurposes the stories and the happenings and the scenes or the type scenes, if you will, in Genesis to prove that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And so we feel that crescendo building in John's book, that with every chapter, with every sign, with every I am statement from John about Jesus, that Jesus is who Genesis said would be coming. And there's some progressive revelation happening. And so I started to look at these two books side by side. And when I read John 20, I realized that here we have another woman in another garden. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning of Genesis in chapter one, two, and three, we know a familiar story that um, God initiates creation and that he breathes life into the first woman and first man. And Eve is in the garden. She's approached by a serpent. She's deceived. She eats the fruit. She initiates this curse of death on all humanity. I mean, she totally fumbles obedience. We know this story well. Her reputation carries into the New Testament when the Apostle Paul says women are easily deceived. And um, so I have carried that truth with me, that women Mm -hmm. are essentially doomed to follow in Eve's footsteps. And anytime I've read about Eve or heard about her, I mean, man, she really bears the brunt. What's fascinating is that Paul really places most of the onus on Adam in the New Testament. But for some reason, as a woman, what I have been receiving, the messages I've been receiving is that Eve was easily deceived. All women are easily deceived. I'm doomed to fail God. I cannot be entrusted with the gospel. Look what happened when we put it in Eve's hand. Look what she did. And I think I heard from my enemy whisper, you're just like your mother Eve. Mm. You're just like her. And so I think that was really a curse on my life that I had let the enemy speak those things over me. Um, But when we put Eve's story side by side, as we would Genesis to John, we put Eve's story next to Mary Magdalene, we see a couple of fascinating things. Both women, they're both in a garden, and they both have the most important situation in their life happen. And we zero in on these stories. And we've got Eve is in the Garden of Eden, while Mary Magdalene is at a garden tomb. They're both in gardens. We've got Eve who is placed inside the garden at God's initiative. But in Mary Magdalene's story, she comes to the garden by her own initiative. And the author, like John, makes sure to tell us that Mary Magdalene came while it was still dark outside. And we can assume that in Eve's garden, the lights had just been turned on by God, Mm. according to that story. And so what's fascinating is that Eve, she is facing a fruit-producing tree of life. And when, when Mary Magdalene goes to her garden, she is facing a tomb, the place of death. And there is no body in that tomb. And in Eve's situation, she initiates this curse of death on all people. But in Mary Magdalene's story, she runs with the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And she initiates the first preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. And so while in Eve's story, a serpent approaches her, in Mary Magdalene's story, we've got angels approaching her. We've got Jesus approaching her. You know, the serpent asks, Eve, cunning, undermining, doubt-filled questions. But the angels and Jesus ask Mary Magdalene compassionate questions, and they speak her name. Mm-hmm. And Eve is hiding in her naked shame. She's cast out of the garden, whereas Mary, Mary Magdalene's weeping without shame in Jesus' presence. 
and it's Jesus's clothes that are missing in the story. And so <laughs> Good we catch. see that Eve is, de- <laughs> Eve is deceived in her story. Mary is commissioned. Eve rebels. Mary obeys. And so what happens in this retelling, this empty tomb scene in John chapter 20, are these beautiful words. Um, in verse 11, it says, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And she saw that the linens were there and Jesus was missing. And Jesus says to her after she's recognized him, go and tell my brother that I'm ascending to the father. And the crazy thing is, Jackie, she does. It says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord making her the first gospel preacher in the New Testament considered the apostle of the apostles by many early church patristic fathers that were misogynistic in most of their views had to consent that she was in fact apostle to the apostles. Um, and I think we could talk later about, you know, that pivotal scene on the mountain before Jesus ascends when he commissions all of his disciples to go therefore and make disciples. And Mary's the only one of them that had any practice doing it at that point. Mm. Mm. Um, and so she, she did run. And, you know, I, you, you mentioned, I tell this, when I retell this story, I want women to picture a first century Mary Magdalene, someone who's been healed of seven demons, picking up her big old cloth dress and running to the upper room while every, or all the guys and gals were hiding in the upper room. Mary's weeping at the tomb. And then she's commissioned and she goes on a run. And you're a runner. I'm not, Jackie. I don't run unless I'm being chased. <laughs> but I keep being told that this is, you know, this is an important moment. I, I can't wait to meet her and ask her what she was thinking on the run. You know, could she picture Jesus? Was she replaying this? Was she anticipating that the male disciples wouldn't believe her? What was she thinking? But I can tell you she wasn't wearing Nike Freeze or Lululemon Wonder Unders or a supportive sports bra. She didn't have a hair tie. You know, you got to picture this woman dragging herself to the upper room, sweaty, hot, dirty, stinky, sandaled feet, and, and bridling, girding her loins to carry that message. And I just think it's beautiful. Yeah. It can look very undignified and, and a little gritty. Mm-hmm. Um, but she showed mm-hmm. such passion and purpose in how she ran her race, if you will, right, to share the good news. Mm-hmm. And it, and what it says to me is, women, we don't have to, pe- some people will want us to conform to how this is going to look. And Mary says, mm-hmm. no, it doesn't have to look perfect or pretty. Just pull up your robe and run, you know, run with grit, yeah. l- run with passion, run with purpose. I mean, she kind of teaches us, as you said, how to run like a girl. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, she she um, she had a choice to make, just like Eve did, and Mary made the right choice. She was obedient, and she did what she had to do. Um, and I think for any of your listeners that feel something in their soul, a calling, um, a planting of the spirit, and their giftedness to preach the gospel, here we have an example of all examples that trumps all examples. Um, that women should, in fact, be preaching. And, you know, it might it might look really different in our Easter services if we aligned ourselves with the scriptures. And instead of hearing only male voices saying the words, he is risen, he is risen indeed, to hear that clarion call from a woman's voice yes. in her tenor to say, he's risen, because that's, 
that's how we heard it originally. Yes. Um, and so certainly John and all the other disciples, they were learning from Mary's example, and that was not unheard of. <laughs> yeah, and I suspect in the beginning they had cognitive dissonance. You know, like they knew women weren't allowed to testify. Surely they had to ask themselves quietly at some point, like, dudes, why did he pick Mary? Why did he pick a woman mm-hmm. to give this most important information? I mean, this is the the mm-hmm. the pivot event in history, right? And she is mm-hmm. not to be entrusted because she's got a weak and fickle mind and she can't testify and she's not supposed to learn underneath the disciple and he hands this to her. And I'm sure it took her, them, all of them together some time to figure out, are we okay with this? Like they had to like deconstruct what they'd been taught about what it means for women and yeah. what it means for men. Like there, there had to have been a season of uncomfortableness in all of this figuring out how to make new social norms according to what Jesus is saying versus what their culture has said, even what their laws have said. It takes time, and I think it does for us too, right? You and I have been in spaces 100%. where guys, like we, we come into some male spaces that are traditionally male spaces, wherever that may be. You and I have both done it. Our listeners have done it. And when, they do, when we do, there's this, we, <laughs> I call it like tilted head, not sure what to do with this, happening what's happening here we're not always even sure how to identify what we're experiencing but it is that we're actually crossing social gender constructs and we're uncomfortable with it and I'm sure she experienced that I'm sure they experienced it this text doesn't tell us but it has to be in light of how the culture was um okay I want to move us on to something else you talk about in your book which I love and I I share this and I always give you credit because I'd never considered this but you were so spot on you mentioned that the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength isn't gendered. Can you explain that mm-hmm. to our audience? Because, of course, they're thinking, well, of course it's not gendered, but we've mm-hmm. kind of taught it like it is. Yeah. I After this experience in the classroom with that, that student yelling at me to just stop, And after I recognized my own soul was saying the same thing to myself, I was telling myself, just stop, just stop. Like, do not pursue more theological education. This is not appropriate. This is not right. Um, I did some digging and it was more than just Eve or Tertullian or Augustine or all of our other fathers in the faith, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Piper, Mark Driscoll, John MacArthur. It was beyond just some of those influences a lot of it had to do with my resistance to Jesus's command to prioritize loving him with my all. And what I mean by that is I came to Mark chapter 12, verses 30, 31, where Jesus gives this great commandment. And I wrote down in my journal, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, this is just your, you know, Jackie, your typical, I read a Bible verse. I went to my journal. Sometimes Writing things out just helps me process what I'm reading. It looks different every day. So I don't want to come on here and act like I do this every single day. But I went and I listed out heart, soul, mind, and strength and did an inventory. And I put check marks next to heart and soul. And my first thought was, gosh, how many times have I referred to women as the heart and soul of education, the heart and soul of the healthcare mm-hmm. system, the heart and soul of the country, the moral conscience, the heart and soul. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm pretty practiced at the heart and soul part, even though sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. It's not really in my Enneagram 8 nature. <laughs> um, I'm really <laughs> Mine <well practiced> either. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I've got a lot of practice in loving God with my heart and soul because I really believe that that was women's work to do. But when I got to mind and strength, I put question marks next to them. And for the first time, I thought, you know what? I think of loving God with our mind and our strength as men's work. And so I gendered the greatest commandment without knowing it. I'd made loving God with heart and soul women's work, loving God with mind and strength men's work. And that's not what Jesus tells the scribe when the scribe asks, how should we prioritize our faith practice? What's the most important thing we've got to do? And Jesus presents a very holistic approach to discipleship. So we got to be all in for him. Every gift, every talent, every part of your, your personhood, your psyche, your body, all of it comes together to love God. And when we do that, we are better equipped than to love others. And so I just started taking this inventory and, and repenting. Like, God, I have, I have totally canceled out loving you with my mind and strength. In fact, I thought it was wrong to do it because mm. I am a woman. I don't see that in the scriptures anywhere. And so there might be convictions of your listeners about a limitation on a woman's role in the church. But what we find in the scriptures is that there are no, no limitations to a female disciple. And the only reason to be a disciple is to eventually become rabbi, you know? And so we see something overturned in the scriptures through Mary Magdalene's example and then through the great commandment. And so I think there are some tricky, uh, confusing passages for me personally in the New Testament that I um, hold in tension with very clear passages like the great commandment that is very clearly calling your listeners to not stay in their place. They have to move forward with the gospel message. Yep. Yep. I love that. I want to talk about particularly all your strength. I love, I love, again, I was so blown away thinking about that because I thought, oh my goodness, I think um, I have heard the message without even being told. Jackie, develop your heart and your soul, um, but but don't think of yourself as strong through strength and mind, right? And the truth is I am actually like you. I'm an eight and I'm married to an eight too. So that's really interesting. But um, (laughs) it's yeah, it's a lot. Um, But I'm actually a thinker and my mind Mm -hmm. is really where I do most of my work for Jesus. And I had Mm -hmm. to come to terms with that that was okay and even valuable. And that I actually could Mm -hmm. think as well as men when it came to theology, Bible, Jesus, and how it practically looks in life. What a novel concept. I know, what a novel concept. (laughs) What about that? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, loving God with all your strength. Because you mentioned earlier that in the early church, Mary Magdalene was historically known as the apostle to the apostles. And I, and I just want to pause on that for a second and let our listeners think about that statement. She was called the apostle to the apostles. And that means she was a leader within the disciples' tribe. And yet, for most of the centuries before, I would say up until about five years ago, maybe, we had always heard her talked about on Easter Sunday as a prostitute. That's her reputation, not a leader within the disciples' tribe. And a lot of that is because of Pope Gregory. When um, he became Pope, he was studying about her, and he believed that the only reason a woman would be demon-possessed was because she was sexually promiscuous. By the way, he didn't believe that for men. 
that if, you know, men were demon possessed, right? But it was, this was his, this, his thinking was, well, the only reason a woman would become demon possessed is because she's been sexually immoral. And so he concluded Mm. that she must have been a a prostitute. And from that point on, her reputation went forward as such. So she's a leader among the disciples. And now for centuries and centuries and centuries, she was a shameful woman. It made me realize historically Often we have minimized women in leadership, women with power. And it's interesting to me, you know, I've worked with women for 25 years plus, and I find it interesting when I use the word power applied to women. Like if I say to a woman, you are a very powerful person, I can watch her wiggle. Like she doesn't feel Mm. comfortable with that word power. I can say to her, you're an influencer, but if I use power in connection with a female they, we have a hard time wearing that. We don't have a hard time saying he's a powerful man. We're okay with nope. that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting to me, and I've even asked women, why does that bother you? So you talk a little mm. bit, you tap a little bit, and I think there's so much research to be done on why women can't wear power. And by the way, power in and of itself is not bad. If you read Andy mm-hmm. Couch's book called uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, it's, it's fabulous book, but he talks about God actually created with power and he actually endows image bearers with, with power and power, Mm -hmm. God kind of power always leads to flourishing. So again, we have a negative idea when it comes to using the word power, but if we think about it in light of God, it's not a negative thing. So you share a little bit about, um, what you've discovered about women in power. I, I even have the book page on there in case all the women want to go to your book and read this particular section. It's on page 129 through 137. So fire away and tell us what you learned. Yeah, I mean, I think somewhere along the way, we started to believe that women are not supposed to be powerful, which is the result of becoming strong. So when Jesus says we are to love God with all of our strength, You have to play that out. What will happen if we get really good at loving God with all of our strengths? We're going to grow strong, and strength produces power, whether it's strength of will, strength of mind, strength of heart, strength of conviction. This leads to a very powerful sense that there needs to be justice in our world, which creates flourishing for people. But somewhere along the way, it became okay for men to have power and not for women. And in 2018, there was a Pew Research study that said Americans are much more likely to use the word powerful in a positive way to describe men over women. So when when powerful is used to describe women, 92% of the people polled thought that's a negative thing. But when we, when we ascribe that to a male, it's 67% positive. So, you know, it's really interesting. I think there's a lot in the scriptures that might confuse us, but however we view strength or power, there's no denying that Jesus is calling women and men to love God with all of their strength. And I believe if you are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated all of his enemies under his feet, then you will also have that power. And in fact, multiple times, Paul and other New Testament authors Uh, reprove us and exhort us to use our power of the Holy Spirit to change the world around us so that everyone can flourish. And the question in my mind, Jackie, was really how strong is too strong? Yeah. You know, so I, I I could mentally assent to, okay, Jesus said, I need to love him with my strength. I'll do that. But obviously there's gotta be a limit because I'm a woman. And so how strong is too strong before I intimidate men? 
You yeah, and even feeling comfortable with your own self, right? Like you can even, oh, I think it's not even just, it's, it's how, before I bother men, right? Before I intimidate men, but, but even how, 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 there's even an internal thing of having to get okay with how strong you are, right? And then it well, goes, I, oh, then yeah, 100%. I, now, how am I, when is, when I bring this into a room? And by the way, it's not just men because strong women upset other women, Oh, big time. And I was just going to say that, you know, uh, someone might listen to part of my story and be tempted to think, oh, man, she doesn't like guys or she's got an axe to grind. I know you get that a lot, too, uh-huh. Jackie. I mean, anytime I talk about women in the Bible or women with power, I get emails, text messages, phone calls saying, you know, why do you hate men? I, I've actually never been mistreated by, by I had such a loving father. I have such a loving husband and male advocate allies at the seminary. And so, you know, this experience I had in that seminary class really stuck out. Um, As the abnormal, you're saying. But I'll tell you that, yeah, it's abnormal. But I'll tell you, women can be our hardest, our hardest to to convince to love God with their mind and strength, in my opinion. Yes. Um, the, the resistance I've received, uh, the harder resistance has been either myself internally or from other Christian women who feel as though I'm trampling on a set of ideals or their livelihood or something they built their, their life around when it couldn't be the more, more the opposite from right. my viewpoint is that I'm not calling them to do less or saying that they are less. In fact, I'm saying there's more potential for us to obey God's great and second, first and second great commandment. But I think what Carolyn Custis James has done the, the best and the most work on the Hebrew word Azer, which could potentially be translated warrior, at the very least means a strong helper. And what we see in the scriptures in the Old Testament, at the very least, is that uh, when women are called helpers, God is called helpers more times than not in the Old Testament. And when he's helping people, it's in military battle. I mean, it's when people's lives are on the line and we need people to take up arms and to be battle ready. And this is the imagery we're given for strength um, as women in the Old Testament. And then in the New, obviously, we're, we're part of God's new covenant family endowed with a powerful Holy Spirit that can slay um, our enemies and slay the enemy. Um, so that's our part of our role is to push back darkness. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God, you know, I used to think, Jackie, of me helping the guys suit up wow, for wow. The, the cosmic battle of good and evil. And I used to visualize that, you know, the way I can best help the church, the local church, the U- church universal, is to help my brother suit up with the armor of God. And I did not picture myself suiting up. And yet the, Paul is so clear that all believers, men, women, and children, are to put on the armor of God and to stand firm in the faith. And that takes a lot of strength to do that. Yes. Um, certainly in our day and for this cultural moment. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. Isn't it funny um, how we read scripture sometimes and we totally don't realize it, but we associate it with a particular group and we actually don't include mm-hmm. ourselves. One of the things when I train women to preach or teach or whatever word they have to use to get comfortable with the idea of Harold and God's word is, um, is to, to try to, every moment they can, to that's accept, that's wise to do so, to try to make sure they use the she reference um, mm-hmm. 
Hmm. So in other words, a lot of times Paul uses the word brothers and brothers and sisters, but it usually gets translated brothers. And so I tell him, you know, hey, you need to say sisters. And if you're just talking to women, leave the brothers out, just say sisters. And they're like, doesn't that feel like it's being feminist? And I'm like, no, what I'm asking you to do is force your audience to identify themselves with that particular passage. Because if you say brothers, Mm -hmm. well, I'm sitting in the audience and I'm I'm a, I'm a sister. And so I can kind of go, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not responsible for what he's talking about right there. <laughs> I can hang back and disassociate yeah, you know, from the um, passage, you know? Yeah, 100%. I was just talking to Kristen Padilla about this, and she's a theologian and cut her PhD. Um, she's on staff at a seminary, Beeson Seminary. And she and I were just talking about this, that, you know, for folks who are really connected to the ESV translation, which I won't use, um, you know, you do get that. You only get brothers. In right. passages where it's supposed to be brothers and sisters. And so she and I were talking about it, a similar experience where you could think about a sermon series at your church. You could go weeks without feeling any application points to the text um, if you're only reading brothers. Right. If and, all the pronouns um, are he. Yeah, I just I just finished Glenn Kreider and Spiegel's book called The Theological. It's called A Practical Primer on Theological Method. Not only was it concise and excellently written, but they intentionally used she and her pronouns throughout when discussing theologians and scholars and academics at the table to process theological method. And I texted them both and just said, thank you. Yeah. I mean, even something as simple as that, I felt included while I was in the learning process, which of course is the point. Right. Um, right. But it's, it's revolutionary when we start to see, oh, God wants to speak to me through the scriptures, right? not just my brother. Right. We don't want to keep women, we don't want to give women the freedom, I'm going to say it bluntly, to be lazy and to not have mm-hmm. to associate themselves with what Jesus is saying in a particular passage. No, no, he wants you to wear that coat. Just like your brothers, put it on. You're supposed to wear it just like them, you know? So so that's the, it's not about like trying to like get the female thing out there. It's like, no, actually I want my sisters to engage Jesus fully and whatever it takes to help them hear and to actually taste and see that he is good, you know? So, all right, we have got to close up, but I want to ask you before we finish, um, there's women here who have power to bring flourishing to the world in which they live and move. Um, They're gifted to lead in all different kinds of capacities. And so in light of what you've learned, both in your own life and the lives of women in scripture that you've been studying, what do you want to say to them? I would say throw caution to the wind. Run as absolutely fast as you possibly can with the gospel message, as if lives depended upon it, as if you were emboldened by the Holy Spirit, and go wherever he calls you. You know, I, I've made a choice re- very recently, and I mean very recently, that when I get asked to do something for God, I will say yes. And if that upsets anybody for any reason, they will have to deal with God on that. Um, so I would just say run as fast as you can with that gospel message and throw caution to the wind. I love it. That's what Jill Briscoe said to me. One time I asked her, I said, Jill, if you had to tell me one thing, particularly because I was a pastor and I was married to a pastor. And so we were both running 150 miles per hour. And I hadn't seen that example very much, you know, a husband and wife doing the same kind mm-hmm. of thing in ministry anyway. And so I said, you know, and I always had people kind of telling me, you know, hold back, Jackie, slow down, you mm-hmm. know, just what are you doing running that race so, so fast, you know? And, um, and I asked Jill, if you had one thing to say to me, what would it be? And she goes, we're in a, 
a football game and she meant soccer because she's English, but um, <laughs> we're in a soccer game <laughs> and the, 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 you know, it's tied and, and you're running the ball down, yeah. down to the goal, run it as fast as you can and, and win the game. And I was like, Oh, yeah. and it was so freeing to have this woman say to me, no, no, don't run slower, run faster, harder, run yes. your race to win, you know? So I hear you saying that. Okay. Before we go, I'd love for you to share with us about your new book that's coming out. Tell us what it's about and why you thought it was important to write it. And who do you want to read it? Like who really needs to hear this? Okay, Jackie, I'm so hyped about this moment right now because you haven't even, I don't know if you've even heard this yet, but there was a moment when you and I were in Israel and we were, I was Mother's Day. We had ride, we rode an armored bus right. on Mother's Day while Gaza's being bombed. And um, we, we get to modern day Samaria. And our tour guide, while you and I are in Israel, he said this really casually. Ronnie said, okay, you guys, we are in modern day Samaria. This is where Dinah would have been raped. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Jackie Reese. And, or this is where Mary, uh, the woman at the well story would happen. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Jackie Reese, and she's going to talk about Dinah's race. And you got up to teach, and I have all these copious notes, but this moment in my mind where I was like, wait a minute, time out. Are you telling me that this general area we call Samaria, more particularly Sikar or Shechem, is the same place that Dinah's story took place, her race took place in a similar place as the woman at the well story? I need to go look at these two. Again, it's Genesis and John. I need to go look at these two women's stories and put them side by side. And so I wrote a book called The In-Between Place, where Jesus changes our story. And I think part of the reason Jesus intentionally went through Samaria on his way to Galilee that day in John chapter 4 is to have a, a conversation with the woman at the well. And I think, of course, he wanted to have a theological conversation with her. Of course, he wanted to commission her as the first evangelist in the New Testament to share her faith with her city. Of course, he wanted to redeem her situation. Of course, he wanted to set her free, all those things. But I think also he went to a particular place, an in-between place, because Samaritans and Jews, they, they, they hated each other. And he intentionally went there. And I think he wanted to undo or to redeem some of the things that had happened to Dinah in that same place, because all of the women who knew about Dinah's story knew what the men of Shechem were like and what they would do to women. And I think these two women's stories are really connected. So I spend the entire book talking about the woman at the well and seven or eight different ways. Jesus redeems the woman at the well situation. And I connect it to um, Dinah's race in Genesis 34. So I think it's really for, the book is for anyone who feels like they're in an in-between place. Like they're between a rock and a hard place. If they look right, they are going to scrape their face on an immovable boulder. If they look left, they will see nothing but darkness. Mm. And I think a lot of people feel that right now in COVID-19 tide. (laughs) is what I'm calling it, COVID tide. Um, (laughs) We're feeling that. that Yeah, we are. We're, we're really, you know, I'm working, but I'm working from home. Like my nonprofit exists, but we're changing rapidly. Like we're hosting church, but we're not in the, I mean, we are in between and we have yet to see what's going to happen with the economy and global 
uh, this global pandemic, but it's for people who feel the pinch of being stuck and how Jesus releases them from that. And as you can tell, I'm more passionate about this upcoming book. It releases January 5th, 2021, than I am even about No More Holding Back. Wow. I love it. I love it. I'm going to be reading it. So um, here's what I want to do. If you guys who are listening want to have further conversations about something that's come up that chat and, that Kat and I have been chatting about today, you can go to Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group, and we'll just continue to dialogue there. But Kat, we probably could go on and on and on, but I want to thank you for giving your time and your expertise. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty pumped about that book. Um, I've been doing a little research on that too. I love the idea even that Joseph was sold there and brought back yeah. there. So even slavery, the idea of slavery being mm-hmm. redeemed, right? Oh, there's so much, so much, so much, so much. But anyway, let me just say, stay well in these weird times and thank you. Thank you. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.